Hey guys, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped to be here today and uh, to bring you a new series that we're jumping into in the beginning of, of this year. Uh, I was off for a couple weeks and thank you for, for Noah and for Matt filling in preaching uh, during the holidays. Uh, it was fantastic. I was in Texas and Sunday morning I, I put my feet up in the, the recliner and got to watch uh, Central, my church family, and watch Noah preach on uh, the day after Christmas, and so it was great to, to still be connected that way. So, hey, I know there's a lot of people watching online right now, and um, so, man, I'm just, I'm glad you guys are, are with us, and for all of you who are online or even in this building, um, you can follow along with today's message. Uh, there's, a, there's a link if you're watching online, or if you're here, you can just use your phone and use the camera and just scan this QR code, and it'll take you to the notes um, for today, because we're jumping into a new series we're calling... The ostrich syndrome, and I get it. That's a really goofy and weird picture. Uh, but you know how there, there's a, a saying or a myth that that's gone around that an ostrich, when it's when it's scared of what's going on in its surroundings, when it's scared, it'll bury its head in the sand so that it doesn't have to deal with reality. I mean, we've kind of heard that before, and we um, we have something going on in our culture and even in the church. And it's called the ostrich syndrome. And the ostrich syndrome is where it's the idea where people ignore things that are uncomfortable. Like if something's difficult to handle, and so you just, you just flat out, I'm just going to ignore it. And if, and if it doesn't become reality in my mind and in my life, then it doesn't really exist. And so we just bury our head in the sand in certain areas. Psychologists say that we bury our heads in the sand because we feel guilty when confronted with reality. And so we'd rather not know how we're doing. For example, like if you continue to walk past that scale, anybody, and never get on it, you're like, nah, nah, nah I'm not going to get, not today, not today, uh, this, yesterday was a cheat day, so I'm not going to weigh today, you know, and so you just continually walk by the scale, even though maybe you're trying to watch your weight and your health and that sort of thing, but you know what, like, I'm just going to, I'm going to pretend like it doesn't exist and I'm pretending like those numbers don't exist, so that weight doesn't exist, and so I'm not going to get on the scale. And as long as I don't get on the scale, then I'm okay. And then reality really hasn't set in. Or if you have financial problems and you've, you decide, you know what, I'm just not going to get online to see my bank account and where it's at. You know, If I don't look at my bank account, if I don't, if I don't see what's coming in, what's coming out, then everything's going to be okay. And so we do that in life in different areas when we are uncomfortable or afraid with reality. And so we bury our heads in the sand. And Christians in America are dealing with the same thing. We're dealing with a new kind of reality, which honestly, it's really easy just to bury our heads in the sand. And the new reality is this new American culture where boundaries are shifting and, and there, are, there are cultural uh, new norms that are developing like constantly and, and weekly and even daily. And as a Christian, you're like, how in the world am I supposed to handle that? And how am I supposed to, supposed to deal with that? And there are things that Christians, we have to come to grips with, with our reality. And most of the time, we don't know how to respond. We don't know how to deal with some of those things. Like, how do we navigate modern addictions in a biblical way? Because there are some things that we are dealing with today that no, no person in history has ever had to deal with the way that we're having to deal with these things. And so, so how are we supposed to navigate those things? How are we supposed to, to, to go through life that way? How are we supposed to do that? Or here's another one. How are we supposed to deal with 
LGBTQ plus culture in our community and even in our church. Because reality is, is that that is something that is sweeping through our culture. And as the church, you know what it is? It's really easy just to bury your head in the sand and be like, ah, I'm not going to deal with that right now. I'm just going to keep them in the church. I'm going to stay in my little Christian bubble. And I'm just going to live life the way that I've always lived life. I'm not going to worry about those things. And the reality is, is if we continue to bury our heads in the sand as a, you know, a local body of believers here and as the American church in general, if we continue to do that, we're going to find ourselves irrelevant in our culture. And over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about those things. In fact, the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about, about something that, that, is, that is really important. And it's, it's how do we, as, as a church, deal with the future of the church? How do we deal with the future of the church? Because the church is going to look like, and it should look very different than what it looks like today. In fact, within dealing with how the future of the church works, there's another question we have to, to answer, and it's how do we connect with and influence the next generation? The next generation, you know those young people that don't know what they're talking about, and you know, their, their lives are all messed up, and I wish they would just be like, like me or just like my parents, and, and we're, we're like, how in the world are, is, is, how can we leave the church in their hands, you know? Like, you look at that next, next generation, you're going, how do we deal with them? How do we influence them? How do we help them as they become the future of the church? Because here's the deal. We are at a crossroads in our culture. I believe, I don't know if you, you sense this, but what's going on in our society? Like, there's just like this rumblings, like, things are not going to, they're never going to be the same. Like, things are going to be totally, radically different across the American culture, and even in our local context and culture and community, it's rapidly changing. And if we don't deal with it, if we don't know how to respond to it, we're going we're to become irrelevant. And our influence is going to become non-existent. And even though we're dealing with some special things in our time, God's word is timeless. Amen. His word is timeless, and he has something to say even about our culture today. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm chapter 78, right in the very middle of the Bible. Open it up. You'll find Psalm. Go to, go to 78, and we're going to start in verse 1. And so in this psalm, there's the, the psalmist, he's, he's going to retell the history of his people, okay, of God's people. And he retells it in a special way. Look, look what happens in verse 1. He says, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words in my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. So he says, here's what I'm doing. I'm going to tell this, I'm going to retell this, this history in this psalm, Psalm 78, of our people. And he says, I'm going to do it in a song. Isn't that smart? I mean, we learned so much. Like, think about when you're a little kid and how many, how many things you learned in a song, right? I remember doing, taking tests even in high school and college and where you had to memorize facts and you could, like, turn them into a song to try to remember. Did do that? Just me? Okay, that's weird. Okay, so, so I, remember, I remember doing that kind of stuff. And, and the reason this psalmist did this is because he wanted it to pass down from generation to generation, a song they continue to sing to remember. Here's what it says in verse 4. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will... Tell the next generation 
the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. And he described some things. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law of Israel, which he com- commanded our ancestors to teach their children. And then he describes why in verse 6. He says, So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. And what I see in this passage is that God wants every generation to know him. There's not a generation in the past, nor today or in the future, that God has turned his back on. He wants every generation to know him. And here's why. Here's what happens when they know him. Look at verse 7. It says, then they would put their trust in God. And would not forget his, his deeds, but would keep his commands. When, when, a, when a generation knows God, then they trust in him. Because it, it's only natural, right, to trust in God when you see what he's like and what, what he's done and the things that, that he can do and his power and his might and his perfection. When we know God intimately like that and we see his love for us, it's only natural for us to want to trust him. And so the psalmist says, hey, we got to tell people about that. We gotta tell the next generation. And then he finishes up, which is kind of funny. He says this in verse eight. They would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. What he's saying is, is that, hey, we wanna tell the next generation about God so that they will trust in God and have faith in God so they'll be better than us. Because we think we're, we got it all together, but I remember what I was like when I was younger, Right? We remember what, we, what it was like and the dumb things that we did and how, you know, and, and there's times when we, we fell away from God and we were not perfect, but yet we kind of idolize our own generation and think we, we have it all together compare, better compared to the, than everybody else. But here's the deal. Every generation matters. Every generation matters to God. And honestly, the next generation matters so much that, that we should be putting almost all of our energy and effort into reaching the next generation. That is the future. And so if that is true, then how do we reach them? Because there's a big challenge. And the challenge is that they're very different. The younger generation, some of you guys are in this this group that I see your faces. You're just way different than us. And it's hard for us to understand what you're like. You know, it's just like, I don't understand why you think the things you think, and I don't understand why you do the things you do. I don't know why you, why you rebel against my generation. I thought I was the cool generation. Now I'm not anymore. Like, what is going on? Like, I don't know how to reach you. It's difficult because there are big differences. And if you write anything down, you can write this. That life experiences, information, and technology, they drive generational differences. Man, that is true. Life experiences, information and tech, it, it, it changes each generation. Because you see, it, inside every generation, when like during your growing years, when you're young, okay, there are things that happen in your society, in your culture, in your life, events that have happened that really, you didn't realize it, but they, they, they formed how you think and how you respond to things and your perception of things and even your perception of how the church should be. And that's one of the difficulties about having a multi-generational church is you've got different segments of the church, different generations that say the church should be like this. No, the church should be like this. No, the church should be like this. And the reason is, is because we all have these different experiences that have shaped the way we think and the way we act and our priorities. For example, 
here's some of the generations that are, that are in this room. We have, there's some traditionalists, okay, traditional generation. That's from 1928 to 1945. Those that were born during that time. And that, that generation, they went through the Great Depression or the after effects of the Great Depression, and they went through World War II. And so it has shaped how they perceive reality and perceive life. And so they're very conservative with their finances, and they don't just spend money like crazy. And they're also very patriotic because they went through that difficult time where the country came together. And so that has shaped the way that they view things. Then you have the baby boomers, right? Some baby boomers in here, born 1946 to 1964. And you guys went through Vietnam, the civil rights movement, the women's liberation movement. And what happened is during that generation, you experienced what it's like to be a change agent. And that generation began to see that, you know what, every single individual can make a difference. And it began to affect the way that the, the, the businesses you went into, the things you got involved in, and even how you perceived church. After the baby boomers, Generation Xers, right? Generation X group, 1965 to 1980. And things you went through were things like, like Watergate um, scandal. You went through corporate layoffs and, and turmoil. And what happened is, if you think about this, it really created this natural pushback for that generation, pushing back against government and like big business. And so they're kind of skeptical, a skeptical generation of people that are in authority, like it hasn't been in the past. And then you get into the millennials, or generation wires, some people call them. 1981, woo, uh, to 1996. This group went through things like 9-11 when you were young. Terrorism, school shootings. And what happened is, is my generation, we're really concerned about safety. Makes sense, doesn't it? We want safety for ourselves and for our, our families. Those are, those are some of the things that we want. And so these, these events, they've really shaped like, who we are and why we, why we believe the things we believe and why we do the things that we do. So if you're 25 years or older, I've just described you, okay? 25 and older, those are those generations. So for all of you that are 24 and, and younger in this room, Man, you're a part of a different generation. And so for all of the older generations, I need to talk to you guys real quick about this younger generation because this younger generation is actually right now the largest generation in America. They make up 26% of the population. And they account for, get this, 40% of all consumers. They are, they are not just a part of our culture. They are shaping our culture right now, and that's the Generation Zers, or Gen Z group, born 1997 to 2015. That's today's college students, that's, that's teenagers, that's young kids, and right now, this is the most diverse group in diverse generation history. They're most, most diverse racially, they're the, the, the most diverse um, sexually, and they're the most diverse theologically. They're totally different than the other generations. And this generation has gone through economic uncertainty, like the recession in 2008 and 2010. They've gone through the redefinition of genders, which I don't understand. I don't get it. I don't believe in that kind of stuff. But that is reality, guys. That is reality that this generation is going through right now. They're also going through the racial movements. They went through COVID in the formative years. Like we all went through COVID, but some of us are like, we're established in our beliefs and our, our way of life and our thinking. But these younger generations, it has affected them. It will always affect them. 
And so here's what this generation wants. They want stability. They long for stability. They long for financial stability, relational stability, social stability, and they will go to great lengths to try to achieve those things. Dr. James Emery White says this about them. He says, their goal is not simply economic security. They are marked by a strong sense of wanting to make a difference and thinking that they can. Like they want to make a difference and they think they can. They want to be social entrepreneurs. That's this generation, the Gen Zers. What really has set you know, Gen Z apart is, is not just what they've gone through, but what they're living in, meaning the information and technology that they live in right now. We call them screenagers, okay? <laughs> That's a good way of thinking about them. They're screenagers, where they, they've always lived with um, the internet and they've always lived with smartphones. And technology has become like the, the center of their lives. I mean, try to take a phone away from a teenager and see what happens, right? And I, I mean, you, I, don't, I don't know of a college student that, that doesn't have a smartphone, you know? I don't know of, of, a, of a teenager that probably doesn't have a smartphone. Almost every teenager has a smartphone. And right now, a lot of kids, even today, it's getting younger and younger every year where they have a smartphone. So what's happening is, is, is they are actually always constantly getting information. They have unlimited access to information. And it's, it's not just unlimited, but it's instantaneous. Like when you say like, hey Siri, what is the capital of Australia, right? Like usually people's phones and everything is going off, right? Good thing I turned my stuff off, you know? But my, my watch would have gone off, my phone and my iPad right now would have all gone off and said, here's the capital of Australia and it described what it, what it looks like, right? We can get information instantaneously and a lot of the information is, is fine. It's just, it's just head knowledge. There's also this huge diversity of morality and ethics and beliefs that are constantly pushed on the younger generation. And the reality is, is they don't have the maturity or the experience to be able to handle those things very well. So they're constantly fighting that. And not only is technology you know, rampant in their lives, but it has really made them lonely. 69% of, of Gen Zers say that they are lonely. And it's very interesting because they're more connected than ever before. But what's happened is they've become more connected with people far away from them, you know? Like they can go and, and play video games with people all over the world or go and talk to people instant, instantly anywhere um, on, on the planet. And so they're connected more than ever with people outside of their, their culture and outside of their, their, their friend groups and, and families. But they are they're even less, it's, this technology has made them less connected with the people closest to them. And it's a weird dynamic that has marked that generation. Last night I was reading through my, my message and I was watching some college football. Anybody? Watch, there's some good games on yesterday. Like there was this game. It was the Rose Bowl. I don't know if y'all watched the Rose Bowl. as Ohio State and Utah. It was crazy. Like this game, like, I don't know. There's no defense at all. At one point, in two minutes and 49 seconds, 
there were five touchdowns, okay? Like, it was, it was crazy. And here's what, here's what it looked like. You had one side, one sideline just going crazy because they scored like a 50-yard touchdown, and all the fans are going nuts, and they're jumping up and down like, we are the best, and we have the best quarterback and best wide receiver. And like 10 seconds later, someone like returns a kickoff the other way, and then the other sidelines is going, yes, we're the best. You know, like, it's just going back and forth, and it was crazy, like this, this huge shifting of emotions. And what's happening in a game is that each side, whether it's the team or the fans, they, they think that they are the best, right? And so they root for themselves as they are the best. And they look at the other team like they are messed up and weird and wrong and they don't have it together and, and I'm going to root for my team. And it's just this back and forth. And the reality is, is that we, in our different generations, we kind of do that sometimes. Like I'm describing Gen Z and you're like, yeah, that crazy generation, they're just awful and terrible and, you know, that kind of thing. Or you're, you're thinking about these other generations, oh, man, these millennials, they're just, they're ruining society, right? And so you think about all these things and you look at your generation as if you are the best. And here's what happens. We look at some verses like 2 Timothy chapter 3. And here's what it says. Think about this with the generations that aren't yours. The Bible says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days, Right? People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, amen, right? Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal not, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Man, that's that generation, you know? The reality is, that's all of us, okay? That's every generation, Every generation has done that. Every generation falls away from God and loves other things rather than God. But here's an alarming statistic about Gen Z. It's very interesting. 45% of Gen Z identifies as nuns. Not, not nuns, like, like, no, not those kind of nuns. Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, nuns. Meaning that, that they don't, ascribe to any religion. They don't belong to any religious group and they don't follow any religious group. They said, you know what? We don't want anything to do with Christianity. We don't want to do, any, do with anything to do with religion. We're just nuns. We have no affiliation. 45% of that generation says, we don't want it. We don't want it. And you know what that's made? That's made that the biggest group of Gen Zers. There are more Gen Z nuns than there are Gen Z Christians. And so, statistically, Gen Z lives now in an unchristian society. And that's something that we have to deal with. That we now, we live in that same society. We live in an unchristian society. Or another way to put it is we live in a post-Christian world. You and I, we live in a post-Christian world or a post-Christian culture. So what in the world does that mean? Well, here, here's what it means. It means that historically based, like think about the American experiment, okay? Historically based on Christian ideas, right? America, historically based on Christian ideas, his, uh, Christian values, that, that's who we are. But a post-Christian culture or post-Christian world recognizes that but now rejects that. They now reject the authority of Christianity. And they don't consider even the Christianity to be the basis of their ethics and beliefs anymore. 
That is the culture that we live in. I mean, look at it. Like the American community doesn't revolve around the American church anymore, does it? For some of you older people in this room, you guys remember a day when you went to public school, put your hand on your heart, said the Pledge of Allegiance, then you had a prayer time, you know? Remember that? Or you would go to the football games and everybody takes your hat off and they pray. Or you go and try to, to get something to, uh, from the grocery store on a Sunday and, and every grocery store in town is closed. <laughs> like younger people are like, what in the world? That's crazy. But back in the day, that was what it was like because the culture revolved around the church. And everybody was expected to be in church. And if you're a good business person, you didn't have your business open on Sunday because you're supposed to be in church. And everybody, all of your, your clients are supposed to be in church as well. In fact, there were laws where you could only get certain things at stores on Sunday. Like milk was one of them. Okay, You could go buy milk, but you couldn't buy some other things. Because the, the culture revolved around the church. But here's the deal. It doesn't anymore, does it? Not at all. In fact, if you look at a map of our community and go about 10 miles in every direction, driving direction, do you know how many people go to church? I'm not talking about in Chicago. I'm not talking about New York. I'm talking about here in our community. Do you know how many people go to, go to, our, go to church? Not just our church, but all the churches everywhere. You probably think that number is pretty big because if you look around, there's churches everywhere. Like we were overchurched. We got just church at every corner, you know. There's too many churches to go around, you know. The reality is, is there's probably less than one fourth of our community in church right now today. Statistics show within our community that 55% of our community, for all you math majors out there, that's the majority, okay? <laughs> they, 55%, don't go to church, meaning that they're unchristian. That means they're lost. They're lost. 55% of our community is lost. What does that mean? We live in a post-Christian world. How do we deal with that? You know, for some of us, that's difficult to get. It's tough. You know, the Bible describes this pretty well in Romans chapter 1. The Bible says in verse 21, it says, For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And then describes that for a couple of verses. And verse 25 says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. That describes our culture, doesn't it? It describes America today, that we, we know about God as a culture, and we've said, no thanks. <laughs> I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to devote my life to something else. And Gen Z, that's all they know. They don't remember a time where it was different. And that may make you kind of sad, and it kind of makes me sad too. But I think that's actually a good thing. Think about this. Go back to... Christian history. When was the church, when was Christianity the most fruitful? The, when it, was, it was the most fruitful when it was not the majority. It was the most fruitful when they were going through persecution and hardships and when they were in a culture 
that did not value them. Like the Roman culture, like modern day China today. There's more Christians in China than here in the United States. They're all underground. They're all doing it in secret. It's amazing about the gospel that when there's opposition, the church flourishes. You know? I was thinking about why is that? Why? It would be really nice if just everybody went to church and our society was perfect and, like, there's no crime and we have to deal with all the things that we're dealing with today and everybody, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, it would be great. What happens is when, when, when you have a, a culture like that, then everybody is Christian, but not many people are Christ followers. And when you go through difficulty and you're living in a culture that doesn't value you and value your beliefs, it gives you an opportunity to be a light in a dark place, doesn't it? And that's, all, that's awesome. When you get a chance to do that, and so that's what's happening to our culture. Where we're beginning to, to see, and it's been happening for a while, but it's rapidly approaching a point where, you know what, the, the American church is, is, a, is a big minority in our culture. But it gives us a great opportunity to be a light in a dark place. And Jesus says, you know what, hey, it's going to be okay. Like, don't be scared about it. It's going to be okay. He says this in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Like, don't worry. Have peace in me. And he says this, in this world you will have trouble. He just said, hey, have peace in me. The world is going to be crazy. Okay? Have peace in me, but it's not going to go the way that you want it to go. But have peace. Because he says this, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I've overcome the world. So Gen Z, they are living in this world. They're extremely different. They're growing up in a post-Christian world. And so now we have an opportunity to do something. We have a ch the challenge of our lives. As all you older generation, whether you're millennials or baby boomers or Gen, Gen Xers or whatever you are, you have a new challenge in your life. And it's this. Reaching the next generation in a post-Christian world. That is our responsibility, is to reach this next generation, guys. We've got to do it. They're the largest generation in, in, our, in our culture now. They are they're the drivers and the movers and shakers of our culture. And pretty soon, they're going to be the leaders of our culture. How do we reach them? How do we do that? Well, it's every, every generation has that responsibility even in biblical times. Look at Proverbs chapter one. I'll put up on the screen here. In Proverbs chapter one, the writer says, hey, hey kids, listen up. I got a word for you. Let me give you some wisdom. He says, here's the, deal, here's the deal. There's gonna be a world that's gonna want you to run this way and there's a God that wants you to run this way. Let me describe it. Here's what he says. Starting verse 8, he says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. Now, like, that is really, like that's, that's cultural for them, okay? This, all the Psalms is, is very cultural. It's, it's interesting. We say, man, this is like the prize of your life, okay? This is like your prized possession is, is to listen to your parents, Okay? What it's saying is, is that you, if you have parents culturally now, if you have parents that love Jesus, listen to them. Follow them. Don't think that they're idiots. 
Okay, all young people here. Don't think that you, you know everything because you don't. In fact, we don't know everything, but we're continually trying to, to know and learn and understand how God wants us to live. But if you have parents that love Jesus, then follow them. And so then, then the writer, here's what he does. He kind of goes through this, this, this chapter and describes um, what it's like when you chase after things that in this world that you, that you desire and want. And to get to that, you, you sin. You know, whether like riches or fame or anything like that. And it's kind of an interesting cultural concept where he's saying, hey, you know, like when your buddies, this is what he says, you know when your buddies are like saying, hey, let's go and like trap this dude and, and, uh, and like rob him and we'll kill him. It's no big deal because we're going to take all of his money. We're going to get rich. He's saying, don't do that because those people are fools. They're idiots. That's what he's saying, okay? He's saying, don't go the way of the world. Go the way of God and he says this in verse 19. He says, Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. When you get that ill-gotten gain, when you chase after things of this world, it takes away your life. It sucks you dry. It makes you irrelevant. It means you wasted your life. That's what he's saying right there. That's something that we've got to be able to teach the next generation. That is our responsibility. We gotta teach them that there's a better way. We got to, got to model that. We gotta model what it looks like to be Christ followers. We got to actually share the gospel with them. We gotta do those things. We gotta teach them what it looks like to live the Christian life in holiness and in honor of God. Those are things that we have to do. And so next week, that's what we're gonna do. We don't have time today. We gotta to go. Like, we're gonna talk about this next week about some practical ways that we can do this. And I'm telling you guys, some of them are kind of radical. Some, some of them are kind of, kind of risky, and some of them are, are really different than the way that we've done church our whole lives. But we're not trying to reach people in the 70s and 80s anymore, even the 90s, even five years ago. We're trying to reach this new generation. And how do we do that? Well, we'll get into the practical stuff next week, but I want to leave you with just kind of a, a, an example an example of how we can actually do this. Because we've got to stop trying to change the younger generation. We're not going to change them. You remember when you were young, right? No one's going to change me, right? We, like, you, weren't, you weren't going to be changed. So why are we doing the same thing? Why are we trying to change the, the next generation? We shouldn't try to change them. We should try to reach them. And here's how we do it. Here's the example. We need to be more like Jesus. How simple is that? We need to be more like Jesus because he really knew how to reach people. He knew how to reach people. And here's, here's four ways real quick and we'll be done. Here's what Jesus did. It's really interesting. Instead of expecting people to get on his level, he came down to theirs. I want you to think about that. It had been really easy for Jesus to, to like just go to the synagogue and sit on his high horse. And that's what the other rabbis did. Hey, if, you, if you've got it all together, if you're smart enough, if you're holy enough, then you can come and be in my inner circle and I will, I will teach you. Like I will, you, you come up to my level and then you can be a part of my group. And that's not what Jesus did. Thank goodness, because we would all be disqualified. Instead of asking people to go to his level, he went down to theirs. And so he went to the places that nobody wanted to go. And he reached people 
that no one wanted to reach. Man, what a great example. Maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe we need to stop expecting the next generation to be like us. Let them be themselves. We can still reach them with the gospel. Here's another thing that Jesus did. Instead of demanding that people learn his language, he spoke theirs. Jesus had so much wisdom, didn't he? He could have preached the most theologically deep sermons way over everybody's head, you know? He could have done that, but he didn't. He taught people in a simple way. And how was that? What did he do? Parables, right? He would teach in parables, which are so sim- simplistic. I mean, he's talking about shepherds and, and grain. and st- like It was just common, everyday thing. And he taught them about the kingdom of God and about salvation through him alone, through those simple things. Because he, he said, you know what? In the middle of him having all that wisdom, he didn't just try to force that on everybody. He tried to just speak their language. He tried to package his message in a way that people could understand. You know? And here's, what, here's what's crazy about our culture. This is the first time in the history of America is that Gen Zers don't speak the same language that the other generations speak. I'm not talking about English. I'm talking about technology. Right? They, they don't speak our language anymore. We got to come up with a way to be able to package our message so that we can reach that generation. We'll talk more about that next week, big time. Number three, instead of lecturing people, he loved them. Yeah, he told them the truth, but he did it in love, right? And he showed them that he cared for them and he met their needs. And so they actually listened to him because they recognized and realized that he truly, genuinely loved them and cared about them. I never thought I'd be a parent that lectured my kids. I do it all the time, don't I? Right? And I don't mean to. It's just like, it's like natural. It's my time to be a parent, you know? And I'm just going gonna to lecture my kids. Does that help at all? It seems like it, that never helps, man. It never helps. Instead of lecturing them, we need to love them. We need to love them, show them that we care. That's what Jesus did. Because he was more focused on, on their souls than their sin. He cared about them. I mean, he, he still called sin, sin, but he loved them. Think about the woman at the well. She'd been running around with like five different dudes. I mean, she is way out of, um, out of her cultural norms. She'd been cast out of society. It'd been really easy for a Jewish guy to walk up there and be like, man, you get out of my face. Don't be around me. Don't make me dirty and unclean. Here's what you're doing wrong. Let me fix you. How many guys, are, y'all are fixers? That's what I am. Like, anytime anybody comes to me with a problem, it's like, I just naturally, like, let me fix it for you. And like, no, I just want to talk. I'm like, I don't get that. You know, I just want to fix you. Okay, so, so that's, just, that's just who I am, you know? Boss like, amen. Okay, so, I mean, that's just, that's just who I am. And Jesus, he didn't try to fix her. He just he loved on her and says, man, things are about to change. You're forgiven. I love you. Number four, 
Instead of obsessing on his present circumstances, he invested in someone else's future. Jesus went through some difficult stuff, guys. Read the Gospels. Man, it's, it's crazy what he had to endure. Think about being on the cross. If I was on the cross, I'd only be thinking about myself, okay? Big time. My present circumstances and how bad it was and, and how I wanted everybody to realize how much I was going through, okay? Like I, I would just naturally want that, my selfishness, all right? But Jesus didn't do that. What did he do? He said, Father, forgive them. That's, that's crazy. Why was he forgiving them? So they could have a future. He cared about them. He wasn't focused on what was going on in his present circumstances. He was focused on their future. And we need to be the same way. Because this next generation, guys, they're the future of the church. That's it. They're the future of our society. And it's our calling in our life is to reach that generation. So next week, we're going to talk about some practical stuff. We talk about some risks we're going to have to take, some things we're going to have to do differently. But we do it for a purpose. That purpose is so that people can know Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, love you. And man, I don't know why you let our society be the way it is. We know you're in control. We trust you have a purpose, you have a plan. And God, we know that part of that plan is for us to do something. I think about the early church and how they're willing to take some risks and do things differently and love people that the rest of society didn't want to love. And um, they accepted people who were totally, radically different than them. Yeah, God, as a church, sometimes we push those people away. We want people to conform to our way of life. And some of those things are just opinions. God, we want people to love Jesus. We want people to follow Jesus. We want our kids and our grandkids and their friends to know the Lord. We want them to be saved. We want them to live their entire lives devoted to the cause of Christ. We want them to change our society. So God, help us to see how we're supposed to do that. Help us to be more like Jesus in our interactions with them, how we love them, how we teach them how we go to where they are, how we speak their language. And I pray, God, for next week as we get into some really practical stuff that you would challenge us and convict us and give us a clear path moving forward. God, may we not bury our heads in the sand anymore. But may we do something about reaching the next generation. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.